0: Well, he is risen. risen. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I I love Easter. Um, there's a lot that we do around the Easter celebration that is uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I, I make sure uh, that I wear my pink shirt uh, on Easter. Uh, this is a new one, actually, um, and uh, Larry does too. There are a few uh, pink shirts out here. Yeah. Um, that we have these lunches afterwards. That's a highlight for us. Is uh, the, the Easter lunches, and again, if you don't have plans, please talk to me afterwards. We'd love for you to join one of the lunches. Uh, we had a beautiful, both heartbreaking and beautiful service with Redeemer uh, on Friday, the Good Friday service. There is a, a lot that we do that is, is a lot of fun. Uh, and it is, it is a, a recognition, clearly, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is is, is something known throughout culture, Right? We live in a culture that even talks about what Easter is, even for those who don't either believe in the resurrection or follow Jesus or any of that. It's a pretty well-known story. But as we gather on Easter Sunday, we're recognizing a deep truth that has deep implications for us. And that is true, thinking both about Lent and Good Friday and our experiences, it is true in the midst of some really heavy, or sorrowful, or grief-inducing, mourning-inducing events. And so as we gather to talk about the resurrection, we're we're looking at this passage from 2 Corinthians that recognizes that. And and we know this is true. Actually, thinking about this, we've we've talked about it a number of times over the last couple of years. We in our circle, so Fountain Square Prez has uh, been a part of and then continues to be connected to Redeemer in some pretty deep ways— and in our congregations, and our communities, we've experienced loss over the last couple of years uh, that uh, is, is, at least in our history as churches, is pretty unprecedented, It didn't uh, attend a funeral really for those first eight years we were here, but in the last two years, I actually had to write down every name so that I didn't forget the folks that we've lost in the last two years. The, to recognize the mourning and grieving that we're experiencing with Rebecca Overman, and Kelly Smith Perry, and Zach Warwick, and uh, Andy's dad Pete just a few weeks ago, Gary Boring just over a year ago, Brian Ali, and then two years ago today, uh, Asher, I'm sorry, not Asher, um, Ames Nottingham. And, and we sit in that grief, and then, and then many of us feel the, the shooting in uh, Nashville hitting very close to home. And our small denomination, a church in our denomination, a pastor who I went to seminary with him and did RUF, our denomination's college ministry with, with him, know Chad and Jada, and they're experiencing not only their own loss, but the loss in their community in, in ways that I can't even imagine. And he is continually proclaiming the hope of the resurrection in the midst of that. And I talked about this last week that there's a, a danger to feel like in this moment that the grief of loss which is huge and does not go away that it would encompass the hope of Easter. And yet the promise is and I know that Chad and Jada believe this and so many at covenant believe this and So many of the family and friends of the people that I mentioned believe this, that actually the the promise is that the hope of the resurrection encompasses the grief. And so as we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, it is hope. And it it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't make the grief go away, but it brings incredible hope in the midst of it, in the midst of all of this grief, in the midst of the fact that we're tempted to lose heart. And, And this... The points this morning are simple, that we're tempted to lose heart, and the second point is we don't lose heart. Verse 16, Paul says, we do not lose heart. That is this promise of hope, and we're going to see why that's the case. But I think for us to have hope, and for it not to just be this story of pastel colors and fun lunches, things that we enjoy and celebrate, and certainly not about eggs and Easter bunny, to, to know that it is something deep and real, it has to hit at what is deep and real that we experience, because that's the promise of what the resurrection is about. And so we do sit in this moment where we are tempted to lose heart. Let me pray, and we'll dive in. Lord, we do pray that you would meet us here in the power of your resurrection with all of its hope for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I mean, Paul is clear here in these verses that there's a lot going on that might cause us to lose heart. He he starts in verse seven by saying that we're just jars of clay. And he talks about this treasure and the treasure is seen in verse six that is we are going to see, that we're able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's this promise of amazing hope. But we hold it in what he describes as jars of clay. That's us. In all of our creatureliness, with all of our limitations, we are not in control. In fact, we are fragile. And so as we think about death and grief and those things, we're, we're actually reminded that we are not in control. And even if we're able to fix some of the things that are wrong in the world, there's just going to be more things that are wrong, right? We don't have the ability. And all of the conversation about how we respond to a tragedy, some of, some of the actual steps that we should take, we should be having those conversations, yes, yes. We should be having reasonable conversations about how we protect our kids and care for one another and avoid death. Those are absolutely 100% conversations we should be having. And, And yet we also recognize in all of our creatureliness and all of our limitations, that if we were to fix the gun problem in our country, that we would still have threats of war, nuclear war now more than ever. We would have cancer, we would have Pandemics, We would have car accidents. We fix one of those and we just have another. That that is the reality in which we live. That we are jars of clay with all kinds of limitations. And that we experience, as Paul goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, that we're afflicted. That we're perplexed. That we're persecuted. That we're struck down. These are not good things, right? These are suffering and mourning. They're the experience of death, which he goes on to say then, in verses 10, 11, and 12, noting that we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, that we're being given over to death, that we have death at work in us. This reminiscent picture of Romans 6, verse 5, it says that we're united with Christ in a death like his. That he calls us into that, he invites us into what we might call a cruciform life, it is a life of sacrifice and of giving and often of suffering and even of death itself. So that when he invites us to follow him, if anyone wants to come after me, Luke nine twenty three, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, that symbol of death, horrible death, and follow me. That's the invitation to come to Jesus, right? And that is the, the, the message that is anathema in our culture today. That we would deny ourselves? How dare you suggest that we deny anything that we say about ourselves, right? That is the culture in which we live in this individuality of never deny yourself. But we're invited into it and even to the point of death. It's not looking good in these verses, right? He goes on to say in verse 16 that our outer selves are wasting away. And... For for those of us that are older, we feel this more acutely. I mean, I, a few weeks ago, I was in this closet moving some stuff around, not doing anything unusual, and I pulled a muscle, and I was in pain for like a week and a half afterwards. I have no idea how that happened or what I did. I, I jumped in the pool earlier this week to swim, and I, I it was into the shallow end, and uh, I tweaked my ankle. Something hurt for a few days afterwards. I'm feeling old. <laughs> And for those of you that are young, this is coming, and you will experience this. <laughs> and, and here's the reality: you will experience this unless you die first. And that's a heavy statement to make. But that's that's the reality. We try to oh, did you just say that? Like death is real, and it comes for every one of us at some point, and sometimes in ways that we absolutely wish that it wouldn't, and, and, and that it shouldn't. But that's the world in which we live because of the fall. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And that includes death. And then it includes all of the brokenness that exists uh, up until death. And there's a lot of it. And, and maybe it's not actual death itself, but it's, it's the death of a dream or the death of a relationship or the brokenness that we experience all around us. Open up your news app, not right now, and uh, it's discouraging you might be tempted to lose heart, to not have hope, to be overwhelmed. Again, learning about what happened in Nashville is overwhelming. Thinking about the loss of the people that we've experienced in our congregations here in Redeemer is overwhelming. And yet the the promise here of the resurrection that he has risen, he has risen indeed, is that that hope, Encompasses the grief. It doesn't yet destroy the grief, but it does encompass it. That promise is, is yet to come. But let's recognize that we have many reasons to potentially lose heart and be overwhelmed. And it is into that that Paul speaks when he speaks of the resurrection. He says in verse 16, We do not lose heart. We're not overwhelmed. Why can he say that? I mean, if you look at back to verse 8 and 9, we're afflicted, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. So he's recognizing all of the reality of the brokenness that we experience. But he says, it does not overwhelm us. We do not lose heart. That's the hope that he has. That's the hope of this gospel message. He says in verse 13, That he has this faith so that he's able to say, I believed, and so I spoke. He says here, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. What has been written? This is a reference to Psalm 116, verse 10, where there is a crying out, a recognition of the psalmist saying, I am afflicted, and yet I believe. I'm afflicted, and yet I believe. Even uh, he he is experiencing death, the, the temptation to be overcome by death, and yet he believes, and so Paul is able to say, even in that moment, I believe. The snares of death encompass me, Psalm 116, 3, and yet, I believe. Because the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus is able to overcome the death. There's a fascinating uh, commencement speech given by Steve Jobs at Stanford in 2005. You can look it up on the interwebs, on YouTube. And uh, he is speaking and sharing some of his experience and stories with the graduating class. And he talks about the fact that he started Apple in his garage. Some of these things that we, we know. Steve Jobs started Apple. Uh, you may have, have heard of it. And um, he, he ends up getting fired by the board. And he talks about it not in these words of, of grief and loss and death. But it's, it's a really painful situation for him. And he goes on to, to start some... Other companies, and ends up one one of those ends up getting bought by Apple, and he's back at Apple, and then he did pretty well for himself. And and Apple, I think, is stuck around, um, from what we know about it. Uh, he talks about the fact that later he was able to connect the dots, to connect the dots of his bad experience of losing his job at Apple, but then seeing how it, it put him in a positive position, and this is what he tells this graduating class who is about to go into begin their careers and start the real world or whatever you want to, however you want to talk about it, and he's noting that they're going to experience these difficult things, and he says, you have to believe that all the dots will somehow connect in your future. He he is noting that essentially you have to have hope. And, and he's, the way he talks about it is in something that is outside of yourself or bigger than yourself, but this is what he goes on to say. and He, he believed that the hopes for us were technological, and those. so he did not believe in God. And he says, you have to trust something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. Uh, it, it is a, a little bit interesting to me that he is, is talking about, essentially, you're going to have to trust something outside of yourself, but he mentions your, your gut in there. But he's saying that, You have to believe that in the future, the dots will connect. If not, you're not going to have hope. But then later in the speech, this is fascinating, he goes on to talk about death as a great invention, as this great change agent in life that that brings about the new and new life. And and yet, if you draw those things out, the, the question then becomes... Maybe in this life and experience, as it did for him, the dots ended up connecting and things went well for him. But the question is, do the dots connect beyond death? Because that comes for all of us. And whatever we find our hope in, whether it's success or finances or relationships or whatever it might be, in death, those things end. Those things are, in some sense, put to shame. And so the question that we should all ask, because death comes for all of us, is do the dots connect through death and past death? And the promise here of the resurrection is that's exactly what is on offer through Jesus Christ and his own resurrection. So Paul says the reason that he's able to say in verse 16, we do not lose heart, is because of what he says in verse 14. The reason that he believes in the midst of affliction is this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, that is God the Father, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The one who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus actually rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, that the God who did that will raise us from the dead ourselves. There's so much going on here in verse 14. And this is central, not only to this passage, but to Christianity and uh, to Easter Sunday, all of it, right? That Jesus rose and then the promise is that he will raise us as well. And and as we gather as Fountain Square Presbyterian Church and so many other churches around the world and throughout history, what we're saying here is that this is real, that it actually happened and that it matters for you and for me. And, And we can talk about for a long time the apologetics or the reasons that we believe that Jesus Actually, rose from the dead in history two thousand years ago, and I'll just give a couple of notes on this. And it's they're all centered around the witnesses. The first is the first witnesses were women, and it is a story that you're going to make up. You know, there's the story, you know, it, the 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 whole resurrection story was made up for power, and which just doesn't make any sense if you look at the experience of the people who uh, were leaders in the church and followers of Jesus at the beginning. They didn't experience good things. They experienced the suffering. But if you're going to make something up, in first century, ancient Near East, you don't make up the story and have women be your first witnesses. They, they, in that time, in that culture, were not even credible in a court of law. They weren't accepted as credible. So you're going to make it up. That's not who you have be your first witnesses. It doesn't make any sense. The second is the That Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 15, that some people might question this. And I encourage you today and every Easter, read 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about the resurrection, and it is amazing and beautiful and powerful. But he notes that people would have questioned. He says, Jesus appeared to all these people, to the disciples, into over 500, and many of them are still alive. What he's saying is, in verse 6, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, go find them. They're there for you. If he's, if he's making it up, if it's a story, he's not going to invite them to find all these many witnesses right? And then, and then finally, those witnesses, the apostles, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, but also a follower of Jesus, says, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. What's he referencing? He's talking about the fact that all but one of the disciples proclaimed the resurrection that was central to what they believed. It was the reason that they were persecuted and the reason they lost their life. If it's something that you make up, you don't keep making it up to the point of death. They saw Jesus, they believed it, they proclaimed it, and they lost their lives for it. And as we gather, we're with Paul on this, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if it didn't happen, then let's pack it in and go home because none of this makes any sense. This is not just some uh, metaphor that we tell ourselves to feel good, that, that that's worthless actually, that that's a waste of our time. And it all hinges upon this actual resurrection. And I'm going to read this poem. I've, I've read it on multiple Easter. I may read it every Easter because it's really beautiful and powerful. It's John Updike, Pulitzer Prize, one of actually four novel, American novelists that won the Pulitzer Prize more than once. But he wrote this, this poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, talking about the reality of the resurrection. And I would encourage you to look this one up and read it as well, also found on the interwebs. It says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule renet, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit and the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not papier-mâché. Not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty. Lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. It's real. It happened. It's not just metaphor. And if that's not true, then let's pack it up and go home. His resurrection and ours. And here's where we, we often skip over or don't think a lot like... I was, I was walking with Jeff Nottingham this week and we were talking about resurrection. And that, that question of what's harder to believe or actually imagine. We, we, we have experienced this story of the resurrection of Jesus and if we're followers of Jesus, we claim, we, we believe it. We, we claim this as the reason that we gather, as the reason that we follow him. But it, it's become so part of the story, right? That we're aware of it and yes, that happened. But it also feels really far away, right? 2,000 years ago in this history that's even hard to imagine. Such a different culture, right? So many things about it. We can distance ourselves from it. But here's what Paul says, not only here, but in other parts of Scripture, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. That you and me in our bodies and in all of our materiality that we will be raised, that in our hearts and our hinged thumbs and toes, that we will be raised to glory, to be in the face of Jesus. That's the promise for us. So as we come with all of these reasons that we might lose heart, the promise is that you and I will be raised in our bodies to glory in the face of who he is in all of his glory. Amen. That is the promise. And absolutely. That can at times be hard to believe, hard to even get our minds around, and yet that is what is on the table here. And not just Easter Sunday, but as Dan mentioned, every single day this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of Jesus and the work that he's done and and the resurrection, and it is this promise for the future, but it matters now. He's saying we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart so that we're able to see these light and momentary afflictions as working for us an eternal weight of glory, something better. And and I, I don't typically encourage us to compare suffering with one another, but just for the sake of context, for us to understand where Paul's coming from and what he would describe as light and momentary affliction, and just a few chapters later in this book, in chapter 11, he describes what those were any one of which would be like the story of my life, right? So he says in Second Corinthians 11, verse 23, greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of, at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Light and momentary affliction. Working for us an eternal weight of glory because he is risen, because of the promise of the resurrection. And without that, the dots don't connect. They just don't. But because of Jesus and his promises, they do. And the promise on hand is that that power, that hope of the resurrection, not only encompasses and comes alongside the grief, but one day we know from the rest of the story, from our, the promise of our own resurrection, from the return of Jesus, that the hope of the resurrection actually will destroy the mourning and grief, for death will be no more. Neither will there be crying or mourning or pain, for the old things have passed away. That's the promise of Revelation 21. That's the promise of the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would remind us again and again of that hope. That we would allow it to come into our lives now.